1: Welcome everybody to episode 12 of True Blue True Crime. My name's Sean and with me as always is my co-host Chloe. How are you?
2: I good, except that when you asked me if I was ready I did a massive yawn like a I don't know puppy or something. <laughs> <laughs> so Although you didn't yawn. Doesn't does that mean you're a sociopath. Yeah, maybe. It?
1: <laughs> I'm just not I'm not feeling you. I've got no empathy, nothing. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Just realised. Mm, I'm
1: super pumped for this case. That's why.
2: <laughs> yeah, right, too focused. Yeah, exactly.
1: And it's a massive case that we've got this week. So we're gonna hop right into it without further ado. But before we do, <laughs> a couple of quick notes about the show. True Blue, True Crime is a weekly podcast covering Australian criminal cases. We release additional exclusive content to our Patreon supporters on a weekly to fortnightly basis.
2: And you can support the show on Patreon. The link will be in the show notes on whatever app you are listening on. Patreon is super easy. You can use your Facebook profile to sign up and support the show with a simple click, like buying something off eBay with your PayPal account.
1: For $2 per month, you'll get exclusive Patreon content, access to Q&As, behind the scenes material, blooper reels. We tease the next show in our Patreon episodes too and our patrons will be getting 10% off in our merch store when that's up and running. we got some new shoutouts this week, Chloe.
2: Thank you and welcome to Vanessa Hanshaw, Nadine Crowhurst, Lauren Whitehead, Laura Orr, Kelly Mitchell, Amy O'Brien, Lauren Summerhays and Heather Sutton.
1: Thanks very much for the support, everyone. We sincerely appreciate that. We understand that not everyone has the ability to get behind us on that front. That's fine. Thanks very much for listening to the regular episodes. You can help spread the love in other ways and support the show by telling your friends and work colleagues, joining our Facebook group and sharing the podcast on social media. We're on uh, Facebook, as I said, and Instagram as well.
2: And if you're up for it, please do give us a five-star rating and write us a review on iTunes. We get them and we read out the five-star reviews at the end of each episode. And for our episode today, we do have a content warning. There's some pretty graphic crimes and descriptions in this week's episode. So we ask our listeners to exercise self-care and look after themselves.
1: This week, we're talking about another serial killer, back-to-back serial killers in our usual style, Chloe. But unlike Eddie Leonsky, the brownout strangler, a U.S. soldier who murdered in Australia, and we covered in detail last week, the guy we're talking about today was an Australian who wreaked havoc on U.S. soil. And this guy's culminating spree over a two-month period in early 1984 would span across the entire continent of the U.S.A. and earn him a spot on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. But as we'll see. The millionaire playboy lifestyle this man led prior to this may well have provided him with the perfect front to conceal an already dark history long before he caught the attention of the FBI. 20th of March... 1984 City of Tallahassee Florida USA He bound Linda's wrists and wrapped her in a blanket Then he threw her into the trunk of his car and took off on a long drive playing Sweet Dreams and Here Comes the Rain Again by the Eurythmics over and over again on repeat He drove to Georgia and stopped at the Glen Oaks Motel in Bainbridge He got a room and took Linda inside After forcing her to sit and watch the television show Dallas, she saw what he had planned. He'd fashioned an electrical device that plugged into an outlet and had exposed copper ends, which he wrapped around Linda's fingers and toes. With a switch that he controlled, he proceeded to repeatedly electrocute her. Then, he superglued her eyes together, using a hairdryer to set the glue, and raped her three times. He said that he was going to get a razor and shave her, and that's when Linda ran, but he caught her and knocked her over the head with the hairdryer, all the while wearing a pair of shiny gold bikini briefs and nothing else. This was Christopher Wilder, the Beauty Queen Killer. Christopher Bernard Wilder was born on March the 13th, 1945, in Sydney, Australia. His mother was Jane Ducker, and she was an Australian, while his father, Coley Wilder, was a US naval officer from Alabama. Coley joined the Navy at age 19 and was at Pearl Harbour on the 7th of December 1941, when Japan attacked. Luckily, his ship managed to escape unscathed. In
2: 1942, his ship was at the Battle of Midway and the Battle of the Coral Sea. This time, the ship wouldn't be so lucky and saw some extensive damage, which required the ship to be port in Darwin for repair. So if we remember back to last week's episode and timeline, this is around the time Leonsky was on the prowl down in Melbourne. Coley and Jane married in April 1944, and Christopher was their first child, born roughly a year later. They lived in Ryde, New South Wales for a brief period before moving back to the United States for 12 to 15 years due to Coley's work on the naval bases around the country.
1: It's commonly reported that a young Christopher Wilder nearly died at birth, that he was read his last rites and for a period of time was very sick but ultimately recovered. Uh, it was also said around age three he nearly drowned in a swimming pool, allegedly, and began suffering from convulsions while travelling in the car and had to be resuscitated. There's actually no documented evidence to support these claims, and while it might be true, it's also possible, as we'll see, that Wilder invented these stories to support his narrative as his criminality escalated in later years. In the late 1950s, the Wilder family relocated back to Australia, where they resided in West Ride, closer to June's family. They now had two more boys, Stephen and Rick, and they'd had a fourth shortly after named John. Around this time, Coley changed work from the Navy to a lab assistant at the University of New South Wales.
2: The family built a house on Meadow Street, North Ryde, and from this point Christopher Wilder had a relatively normal childhood, a fairly stable and solid environment. His parents, by all accounts, were loving although his dad was likely to have been more disciplinarian than his mother, who had a softer touch. His father would insist the boys referred to him as Sir. His brothers were normal, and Christopher too. He was regarded as a normal kid, other than some early peeping Tom-type stuff when he was quite young.
1: Wilder went to nearby Epping Boys High. He had an IQ of 104, average intelligence, average student. He was into American sports and would become an avid sportsman as he grew up, He was tall, blonde, good-looking, had a classy American accent to boot. He left school at age 15, much to his father's chagrin, but started a carpentry apprenticeship and was quite diligent with that and saving money for his first car. Wilder would get right into cars as he grew older, even getting into racing them. Friday the 4th of January 1963, when he was 17, just shy of 18, he was driving his first car around, a, uh, it was a, a mid-50s Morris Minor, I believe. Wilder and two friends were horse-playing or skylarking, it was described as, with some girls at the beach at freshwater throughout this day. One of Wilder's mates was in a relationship with one of these girls and she had a, a younger 13-year-old friend with her.
2: Towards the end of the day, Wilder persuaded his two mates to get the 13-year-old into his car and go for a drive. The girl was keen to go for a drive with the American boy. He was exotic and different. On the drive, however, she became worried when they didn't drop her home, instead driving her to a deserted quarry a few miles away in Beacon Hill.
1: Here, Wilder apparently told his two mates to leave him alone with the girl. They walked off a 100 metres or so, and Wilder moved into the back seat and raped her. Wilder's two mates heard the commotion and had an idea of what was going on, but they didn't interject. When they returned, the girl was doing up her bra and Wilder asked them if they wanted to fuck her. They declined. They drove back to Freshwater, where the two males apologised to the girl, but Wilder didn't. She said she was going to tell her parents what Wilder did, and she did. Before his 18th birthday rolled around, Wilder was charged with rape and carnal knowledge, as were his two friends.
2: Wilder would tell the story that he had been misled by the other two, even though they didn't assault the girl. While the other two lads would put Wilder front and centre as the ringleader, they were merely complicit and they were remorseful that they hadn't stopped him for the girl's sake. Because of the finger pointing and the boy's age, they weren't able to say who was the leader, so all three boys were punished, despite the other two not assaulting the girl. Her testimony put Wilder at the forefront, so we're not sure why that wasn't highlighted
1: more but it's likely because the crime of rape wasn't as serious in the 60s as it is now. Wilder, with references and the veneer of his family, was able to plead down to guilty on carnal knowledge only and received a good behaviour bond as well as mandated sex education classes. The other two boys were also able to plead guilty and received good behaviour bonds. Needless to say, these two never saw Christopher Wilder again after this but the judge held Wilder as a high prospect of rehabilitation and with his solid family, carpentry apprenticeship, father's military record, etc., he was let off quite lightly. And this would be a theme in Wilder's life that we'll see. He gets off very lightly through being charismatic, charming and a good talker essentially.
2: Wilder would also claim later that he received electroshock treatment following this incident, Again, there is nothing in documented records to support this, and it's been suggested this was just another of Wilder's stories to help bolster a psychiatric-based defence should he ever need it. But whatever the case, he would certainly have growing thoughts centred on this subject of electroshock treatment in years to come.
1: The common story of Christopher Wilder's first and only marriage lasting all of one week is actually not true. The marriage lasted one year, And the relationship in total around two years, give or take. For the sake of the story, we're just going to refer to Wilder's wife as Jane Smith, so we have a name for her. We actually don't know her real name anyway. Jane met Christopher Wilder in the summer of 1967 while on a day trip with her parents and younger sister to Palm Beach. Sydney's northernmost beach. And incidentally, fun fact, Chloe, Palm Beach is actually Summer Bay in the television soap drama Home and Away. Oh. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> um,
2: Jane was about 20 years old and she was beginning her career as a school teacher. Her sister was 15. So Wilder was eyeing off the pair all day from the car park where he was leaning up against his red Austin Healey Sprite sports car. He'd upgraded from the Morris Minor to the most entry-level sports car he could get at the time. He'd finished his carpentry apprenticeship at this point.
1: Wilder struck up a conversation with the girls and things progressed over time from there. His initial attention was focused on Jane's 15-year-old sister, but Jane's father stomped on that very quickly, so Wilder shifted his focus to Jane. Jane. Things would go well for a short while before Jane got a glimpse of the Wilder we'll come to know. One time he tried to force her into posing naked for some photos, which she declined. Then he threatened to force sex upon her if she didn't comply. And that was it for the time being. It was an awkward moment, but the relationship went on.
2: Jane's parents did not like Wilder at all. They'd see glimpses of his aggressive outbursts, but despite her parents' disapproval, Jane did end up moving out and continuing the relationship with Wilder until February 1968 when they got married. For the first few weeks, their sexual relationship was normal, but then it turned weird. Wilder wanted Jane to hurt him, to scratch him during sex, and he'd force himself upon her three times a night, putting her in positions that physically hurt her.
1: He got very angry if he didn't get his way with Jane or if she had her period or if she wouldn't give him anal sex. And as a side note, anal sex was actually a criminal offence in Australia back at this time, I read. Wilder showed up back at Jane's parents' house one day, randomly, and he tried it on with Jane's mother, but she didn't take any of his shit, and he ended up leaving. He tried it on again with Jane's younger sister one time when they were at a wedding, Jane would soon find a cache of disturbing photo negatives and photographic equipment in Wilder's drawer. one day. There were nude women, semi-nude women in towels, and some of them were wearing Jane's own bikinis and undergarments that she'd mysteriously lost. And there were names, numbers and addresses of these women also.
2: Jane also noticed his behaviour would change when anything to do with semi-naked women would come up. He'd go straight to the fold-outs and bikini models in magazines and newspapers, and he'd get excited if something came on the television or movie screen that had a suggestive connotation surrounding a woman.
1: And strange things began happening to Jane's car after a while. Failed steering, mysteriously running out of brake fluid, which was strange because, as we said, Wilder was a petrolhead and presumably all over the car side of things. She'd had no issues with her vehicle up until this time. One time Jane was asleep and awoke to the smell of gas inside the house. Upon inspection, she found all the windows in the house were closed, which was unusual, and then she found Wilder outside in the yard. When she approached him, he came back in and said that he couldn't smell any of the gas at all.
2: Jane left him a couple of times, but came back. But in February of 1969, she would leave him for good when Wilder was arrested and questioned on suspicion of rape. During their marriage, Wilder had been refining the M.O. he would adopt for many years to come. Wilder would persuade women to pose for photographs with the premise that he was a talent scout of sorts and he would help them build up their portfolio and take their modelling careers in an upward trajectory.
1: He'd done this with a young nurse who he found while trawling one of Sydney's beaches and over time basically harassed her to the point where she posed for him and he pushed it too far. He took her to a secluded spot and forced her to pose naked while he filmed her, before taking her to a house at an unknown location and raping her. Wilder was already on the Australian police radar, and this young woman plucked up the courage to report him, but she didn't want to give evidence. Wilder was getting mighty cagey around this time, Jane noticed. He'd freak out at the sight of Holden's, which was the make of police vehicles at the time, Eventually he'd get hauled in and questioned over the rape, which he'd put his own spin on, making him seem more empathetic and remorseful than he really was, and in the end, police were told there wasn't enough evidence to charge him and take him to trial for this crime, so he got off.
2: But Jane had packed up and left by this time, and that signalled the end of their marriage and two-year relationship, which would have pleased her parents. But there was certainly a lot more there than a one-week-long relationship followed by a divorce.
1: Things were hot for Wilder now, and he had a dual Australian-US citizenship. Despite his success with the photographer ruse, he'd still been effectively caught and would be the prime suspect for any future assaults in Sydney's beach corridor. So as we'll see with Wilder as we go along here, when things start to heat up, Christopher Wilder gets the hell out of the kitchen.
2: And in mid-1969, he went back to the US, and he went to Florida, Florida where he had a whole network of extended family to help himself get established. He stayed with his grandmother in Fort Lauderdale, got steady work as a carpenter and eventually met and began a relationship with a woman named Nola.
1: Wilder would be with Nola for eight years. She described him as pretty normal at first, but over time, cracks started to appear. Wilder was a perplexing character, full of contradictions. He and Nola moved to Miami to a place called Loxahatchee, which was 15 minutes from the upper class West Palm Beach. Wilder was a hard worker. He did long hours, often rising at 5 or 6am and working through till 11pm at night, plus working Saturdays. He liked the finer things in life, but had basic tastes, eating out at steakhouses, never seafood, and he wasn't a drinker. He'd occasionally indulge in a black Russian for show or a glass of wine, but that was it. And he didn't watch any television either. When it came to his appearance, he was very meticulous. Always brand name clothing, gaudy gold jewellery, top brand sunglasses, leather driving gloves, etc. He loved the Miami lifestyle, but he loathed the heat. Loved the beach, but never really went into the water. He had a boat that Nola said was mostly for show as well. He rarely took it out.
2: But his love affair for cars was the real deal. He'd end up buying a Porsche 911, but his daily commuter was a grey work truck. He'd also help Nola breed dogs. Nola was part of an English setter foundation and Wilder and her had dogs and bred them and he used to wear a pin for the foundation on his shirt. So Wilder had really set himself up with this image of wealth and was probably trying to move up the social status ladder around this time. He'd get into a construction business named Sawtell Construction Group with a guy named LK Kimbrell and buy up land around the area to work on property developments.
1: And Nola said that he had few friends, wouldn't get particularly close to anyone. She thought that her and LK Kimbrell probably knew him the best. Despite loathing the heat and not being a water person, Wilder was insistent on buying a house near the beach, and I think we know why. Wilder was still maintaining his photography and model talent scout shtick, usually on Saturdays when he told Nola he was working. She thought it strange at times that he'd go to the beach with his camera alone, but wasn't much of a photographer in his daily life otherwise. He never took photos of them socially during their relationship. He liked nightclubs but never danced. He was very vain, worried about his receding hairline, And he'd wear a toupee from time to time. And he was becoming more and more successful into the mid-70s with his construction business and the correlating Florida property boom at the time. But as we'll see, that despite this veneer of normality, Wilder's primary motivator, his lifeblood, was still preying on women on beaches with this photography ruse. In nineteen
2: seventy-one in Pompano Beach, Wilder was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct a small fine of 15 to $20 at the time. He essentially did the same thing he always did here, promised something to a young girl, lured her away for some pictures before asking her to pose naked, but he was too enthusiastic too early on this occasion and she reported him. Nola would soon realise Wilder was having affairs with other women and she'd also, like his wife in Australia, find numerous photos of women with their accompanying names, addresses and phone numbers on them.
1: In 1976, in Boca Raton, Florida, Wilder was charged with sexual battery for luring a young 16-year-old girl into his truck and forcing her to perform oral sex on him. Wilder once again used a ruse to lure this young girl, but this time he was using his carpentry angle. He approached the girl saying that he'd done some work for her parents and offered her her ride before things turned bad. So he's striking this sense of familiarity, getting these girls' guards down, and then he's turning into his real self. He beat the girl pretty bad in the car and he slapped her around and forced her into sexual acts, groping her and ripping her clothes.
2: But Wilder would inevitably get away with this crime when he was acquitted, claiming a degree of consent from this young girl. Strangely, he had contradicting psychological assessments from two different doctors. One nailed him, the first guy Wilder saw. He basically said he wasn't fit to be in public and had some sort of sex-related mental disorder. The second guy put Wilder forward as a chance of rehabilitation. The judge asked Wilder if he was sane enough to stand trial, and Wilder replied, Well, I'm masturbating twice a week to the mental image of raping a girl.
1: And surprise, surprise, none of his Australian crimes were known about, so other than the small misdemeanor offence from five years ago, he really had no other record in the US. After his acquittal from this crime and breakup with Nola, Wilder would move from Loxahatchee to Boynton Beach, and this was really where the stories of his playboy lifestyle started to come out. But in reality, it was just a show. The place he lived had a touch of affluence, it had a, a small sauna off the master bedroom, but otherwise it was a three-bedroom, two-bathroom place, it had a two-car garage for his uh, his Cadillac and his Porsche 911, and it backed onto a canal where he kept his very occasionally used speedboat. Wilder would reportedly do little of the work in the Sawtell construction business with LK Kimbrell and just piss around all day basically, often going off for long drives, sometimes days on end. And everything was a big show. He wore a pair of gold rings with diamonds that were really zirconias. He'd travelled to Hawaii and the Bahamas on a regular basis for holidays. He'd hire women to accompany him to clubs and dinners. was always a cool and calm customer, very flashy with his outward appearance.
2: He also started seeing a therapist around this time – And this is said to be when he started coming up with a lot of this backstory about his childhood. So the sickness he'd allegedly suffered that no one had heard about before this and the electroshock therapy that, once again, no one had heard of. And we see this with these types of offenders. They begin to sort of craft this narrative that may end up helping them rationalise what they've done should they ever get caught one day.
1: Saturday the 21st of June 1980... Wilder approached two girls at the Palm Beach Mall. The girls weren't locals, they were visiting family in the area, they were from Tennessee. Wilder once again lured them using his photography, claiming he worked for Barbers on Modelling, which was a big name. He'd use this same template moving forward, he'd really refined this approach over the years. He'd use a big company name that he actually wasn't a part of, have fake business cards made up and then he'd flatter the girls with compliments. Slip in a, but you might need to do this or do that to make it. Then he'd get their guards down by mentioning he'd need one of their parents to sign some paperwork. And bit by bit, he'd make the girls more uncomfortable, just a little more each time with his requests, uh, getting a bit more suspicious. And this would happen over a period of hours after he'd flattered them and lured these girls who were thinking, you know, They'd been discovered. This was their big break. They might have heard stories about things like this happening before and it was like their dreams were coming true.
2: So with these girls, he was basically indoctrinating them, having them reply when he'd ask, what are you? They'd reply back to him with a barbazon model. He'd introduce himself as David Pierce at this time, by the way. So he's got these girls dressed up in different outfits by this time, taken a few snaps, had them change in the restrooms take their bras off under their tops, brought them pizza, driven around a bit outside. This has been going on for over three hours by this point.
1: At some stage, Wilder managed to split the pair. I think he told one of the girls to go grab something inside the mall and he took the other girl in his truck around the back of the mall to this shadowy quiet spot. The girl said something about feeling woozy and Wilder told her that she'd be out within 15 minutes, implying that he drugged her. He then took off his shorts and demanded the girl to straddle him and he raped her in the front of his truck, saying to her he wanted a little piece of arse to fantasise about for the next five years. Then he dropped the girl back at the mall and left, but in the meantime, the girl's friend had spooked to something being wrong and sought help from inside the mall. The girls would turn Wilder in and eventually both pick him out of a picture book lineup and the police would arrest him on a building site just a couple of weeks later.
2: They had a genetic sample tying him to the crime, not like the DNA evidence of today, but still supporting blood and semen analysis. They'd also discover he'd laced the pizza he'd bought the girls with LSD. And once it became evident he wasn't going to get away with this, Wilder took the remorseful route with his charge. And long story short, he was able to plead the charge down to probation with therapy. Which is crazy to think, looking at what he'd done to this point. But I suppose we also have to consider the crimes in Australia and the US weren't fully known by the other country. And as you said earlier, rape just wasn't viewed as a severe crime in this era.
1: So Wilder was free again, and he continued the Miami lifestyle he'd grown accustomed to. He kept his Boynton Beach home in impeccable condition. His neighbours and acquaintances described him as a lovely man who didn't drink and rarely swore. He got right into racing at this time, even had his own racing team, driving his Porsche 911. He made a video for a Florida dating service in 1981 as well, kind of like an 80s RSVP or something. He was quite candid and charming in the video, by all reports. He'd not watched much television before, I think we said earlier, Nola said he wasn't into it. But after separating with her, he'd get right into the hit TV series, Dallas. And he'd also, they'd discover this much later, he'd get into a book called The Collector. And this is a really famous book that's been found in the possession of a few serial killers. It's written by a guy named John Fowles. And basically it's about this guy who's obsessed with a girl and he takes her hostage to make her his sex slave.
2: And I think in light of the direction this tale is going to take very shortly, it's worth mentioning the landscape in Florida at this time. The murder rate in Miami in 1981 had risen dramatically, overtaking Newark, New Jersey, which gave it the label of the murder capital of the US or Dodge City South. Violent crime was also on the rise and this was said to be linked to the drugs trade. So the likes of Wilder and his sexual offending weren't really on the top of the police priority list. This was the time of Miami Vice. So we're talking blood and bullets, fast cars,
1: designer clothes and jewellery. And amidst this crime wave in Miami, reports of a few missing girls would start coming to light. On the 16th of May 1981, young Mary Opitz was shopping at the Edison Mall in Fort Myers with some family members. She was 17. At some point she became a bit weary during the shopping trip, so she went back to the family car in the parking lot with a bag of pretzels, while her mother and brother finished their shopping. When they returned to the car, she was gone. No signs of struggle, but the packet of pretzels was on the boot of the car. It was evident that she'd had a happy home life, and as time went on with no sign of Mary, it became likely that something had happened to her. And to this very day, Mary Opitz's body has never been found.
2: Linking with this, only a few short weeks later, on February 11th, 1981... Another girl named Mary, Mary Hare was her name. Her car was abandoned and found in the same parking lot. In similar circumstances, she was also similar-looking to Mary Opitz. But Mary Hare's body was actually found a few months later in a field off Florida State Road 82. She had multiple stab wounds to her back, but due to the state of decomposition on the body, they were unable to determine if there was any sexual assault. And we'll see as we go along why... Years later, Christopher Wilder would be thrown out there as the prime suspect in these cases.
1: In 1982, about 12 years after moving back to the US, Wilder feels like it's safe enough to return back to his homeland of Australia and visit his parents. Pretty soon after this arrival in December, he'd be trolling Manly Beach, looking for some unsuspecting young females to lure with the promise of a modelling career. He was calling himself uh, Larry Kadansky at this time. He'd find a girl named Fiona Parsons and attempt to lure her, but as the request from him kept escalating, take off your panties, don't put your bra back on, etc., she eventually broke down crying, realising this wasn't her big modelling break and she made a break for it. Only weeks later, after travelling north to visit his parents, then to Queensland briefly, Wilder was back in Manly Beach where he'd lure another two unsuspecting girls and this time it'd go much further.
2: He'd end up blindfolding and kidnapping the girls under the guise of taking them to this modelling studio but it was his hotel room. His veneer would change when they got there and he'd force them to pose nude for him while he snapped dozens of photos of the girls and then he'd eventually masturbate right in front of the terrified pair. He'd finally release the girls and they'd report him to police and the police would end up locating Wilder with the girls' help, locating his rental car and tracking him to the hotel room. Wilder would put up little resistance as the police bumped into him at the elevator and arrested him. He took the remorseful approach to begin with but then his growing experience in the legal arena would come out and he'd eventually clam up without a lawyer present.
1: He'd end up being charged for kidnapping and indecent assault and his family would collectively post $400,000 bail to get him out and that's a huge sum back then. It was a surety so not cash but his parents put up $200,000 which was their house. Wilder's uncle put up $150,000 in home equity and Wilder himself $50,000. But get this, Wilder was allowed to leave the country and return back to the USA after this, with a trial for these offences pending in May 83, which would eventually be pushed back until April 84. But as we'll find out, Christopher Wilder wouldn't make this trial. Back in the US, Wilder would meet a girl named Elizabeth Kenyon around this time in 1982. She was called Beth by her family, so we'll refer to her as that. Beth was a very vivacious, buoyant and beautiful young woman. Described as a classic American beauty, she had luscious brown hair, dark eyes and fine features. She was very intelligent and caring. She worked in Coral Gables at a school for children with special needs and on the side, she dabbled in modelling. She'd done a campaign for Lowenbrow beer and been on the lead float at the Orange Bowl Parade in Miami, and she became a finalist at the Miss Florida USA pageant.
2: And that's where Wilder met her. But he'd take a different approach with Beth and work on her over time. He'd tried to actually get in a relationship with her, earned her trust, and they'd build a friendship over a period of months. He'd take her out for dinner and meet her family and even taken a summer trip with Beth up to the family's holiday house in Lockport, New York State. He'd pursue Beth quite persistently, but he wasn't pushy. Eventually, Wilder proposed marriage, but Beth turned him down politely, and the pair remained friends after this.
1: Very soon we're going to get to the 1984 Miami Grand Prix, where Wilder's official record will get to a whole new level of depravity, But before that, we have another string of young women who went missing around this time, with no resolution to their cases. June 27, 1983, Shari Lynn Ball left her home in Boca Raton, Florida. She told her mother she was heading to Boynton Beach to meet a friend, then heading to New York State to pursue a modelling job. No one knew who she was going with, but she did phone her boyfriend while on the drive to say where she was, but once again, she just told him she was with a friend. Her disappearance wasn't taken that seriously to begin with. She'd had some tensions at home with her mother, but eventually when she didn't make contact again, it was escalated.
2: In October 1983, Shari Lynn's body was discovered in Shelby, New York, However, she wasn't identified in 2014 as technology advanced. That's a staggering amount of time for her family not to know what happened to her. No resolution. Around the same time of Shari's disappearance, a man fitting Wilder's description would be seen near Lockport, New York. If we recall, that's right near Beth Kenyon's family holiday home. Lockport and Shelby are a stone's throw away according to our Google mapping. Wilder gave his business card out to someone at a local garage sale, declaring himself a professional freelance photographer who helped aspiring models. So this put him in the area at the time of the disappearance and where her body was eventually
1: discovered. On Wednesday the 6th of July 1983, Tammy Lynn Leapert, who was a model, actress and beauty queen, went missing from Cocoa Beach in Florida. She's never been found but authorities have once again linked Christopher Wilder to her disappearance and probable murder. Tammy Lynn's disappearance is more high profile than Sherry Lynn's and the next one, which we'll get to, but Wilder's a prime suspect based on a name-redacted police report which describes her as having recently befriended a white male, late 30s, who told her that he produced movies.
2: On the 25th of May 1983, another young girl named Robin Melanie Adler went missing after leaving her boyfriend's home in Loxahatchie. Her body has never been found, but her car was discovered abandoned near Royal Palm Beach, beside the canal. Her physical description and location once again link Wilder.
1: And then in a the sickening change of MO, Wilder would be undoubtedly connected to the abduction and brutal assault of two girls who were just 10 and 12 from the Boynton Beach area in July 1983. The girls had been picked up and driven to a remote location where they were subjected to a brutal sexual assault uh, on a tarp that the attacker had laid out. He used the same photographer modelling career lure and years later, when technology and testing got a lot more refined, samples of genetic material from this scene would match Wilder.
2: Somewhere in the years of 1983 or 1984, an unidentified body was found in Davy, 65 kilometres south of Boynton Beach. She was white, 5 foot 4, slim and somewhere between 20 to 30 years old. It was determined that the cause of death was strangulation, but to this day she has not been identified and police believe that Wilder was involved. None of these disappearances or attacks would be connected to Wilder as a possible suspect or definitive culprit until years later.
0: For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.
1: It was in February 1984 that Wilder would be finally officially connected to a disappearance. Rosario Gonzalez was a 20-year-old woman who had worked at the Miami Grand Prix as a model. She was last seen around midday on February the 26th with what was described as an older man. Rosario was working as a model for a company who manufactured aspirin-based painkillers named Majoral. She was a strikingly beautiful young woman of Cuban descent, and she was engaged to a man named Bill Londos. Wilder was allegedly creeping around the Grand Prix, having raced the day before, with his photography get-up and claiming that he was working on a Budweiser commercial. Colleagues became worried when Rosario hadn't returned towards the end of the day to retrieve her paycheck. She was earning around four hundred dollars per day at this time, about a thousand dollars a day in today's money, and it was a casual gig, so not showing up to collect your pay at the day's end really sounded the alarm bells.
2: Numerous witnesses would end up connecting Wilder, or at least a man matching his description. Police would eventually uncover that Rosario had met Wilder some time earlier and had posed for a couple of photos for him, which were allegedly for the cover of a romance book. The formal connection to Wilder would come with his next victim. And we've talked about Beth Kenyon, the young woman who Wilder had attempted to woo unsuccessfully over the past year or so. She was last seen on March 5th, 1984, at a Shell service station in Coral Gables.
1: The alarm bells would begin to ring when Beth didn't show at work the following day, and she'd be reported missing to the police by her family immediately. And this was probably the difference here. It seemed to me like the Kenyans had some financial means. I mean, they had a home in New York State and their summer place in Florida. Beth's dad wasn't happy with the lack of police initiative surrounding his daughter's disappearance, for reasons we've probably covered. So he hired a couple of PIs to look into things. Now these PIs turned up with nothing, believing in all likelihood that Beth had left of her own accord, which her dad thought was preposterous.
2: Police would later locate Beth's car at the Miami International Airport and during this time, Beth's mum would also contact a number of her friends trying to find her. One of these friends was Christopher Wilder and the phone call left Beth's mum with an eerie feeling. Despite the fact he was saying, can I help, Beth's mum's maternal hairs on the back of her neck were standing up. She sensed this underlying feeling from Wilder that he just wanted to get her off the phone.
1: And that was strange because he'd been such a gentleman, but also he'd proposed to Beth. So you'd think that someone that was that in love with another person would be, would be up there trying to help find her. So that phone call, coupled with the locating of Beth's car, prompted the Kenyans to find a better private investigator. They hired a guy named Ken Whittaker. So you had Ken Whittaker Jr. and Sr. We're talking seasoned law enforcement guys here, former detectives, FBI heritage, etc. And I think it was Whittaker Jr. that headed up the inquiries, Whitaker went after Wilder based on this hunch right away, after canvassing many of the people in Beth's life. Wilder was flippant at first, saying that he'd dated Beth, but her parents didn't really like him and it didn't work out, so that was that. He said maybe he was too old, but they'd remained friends and he hadn't seen Beth in over a month. But Whittaker wasn't buying Wilder's facade. It would become apparent when they showed a photo of Beth to the service station attendants where she'd last been seen, they recognised her. They said that she was about to pay for her fuel when a guy in a grey Cadillac drove in behind her and paid for it. They said she and the man appeared friendly as if they knew each other. So Whittaker showed the service station attendants photos of various men and these guys pick out Wilder as the driver of the grey Cadillac and this prompts Whittaker to visit the police, and they discover the sordid criminal past of Christopher Wilder. So the PIs are hot on Wilder's trail, they're calling him, questioning him, showing up at his house and his business, hounding him, but the police and FBI wouldn't get involved at this point because there was no evidence of a crime and nothing definitively linking Wilder.
2: Beth's parents and her brother have this shocking realisation when they see a news report about a girl who'd gone missing from the Miami Grand Prix and they all thought she looked a lot like Beth. It was Rosario Gonzalez.
1: So now Wilder's the prime suspect in two recent disappearances. Up to this point, Wilder had shown no outward signs of being worried, continuing on his cruising and lavish life in Miami and surrounds, dining and driving and hiring women for company. That had changed one morning when Wilder was reading the newspaper at a local diner, smashing steak and eggs for breakfast, chatting to waitresses like he didn't have a care in the world.
0: The 12th of March, the Kenyans came to the FBI, uh, seeking more active involvement of the FBI. Of course, we didn't have any jurisdiction at the time. There was no evidence of an abduction. In an attempt to put pressure on Wilder, the Kenyon's private investigators leaked their findings to the Miami Herald. The story was published on March 16, 1984. Though the article did not mention Christopher Wilder's name, it clearly accused him. The report described the man connecting Gonzales and Kenyon as a local contractor, race car driver, amateur photographer, and a native Australian. It was Wilder to a T.
1: Wilder knew who they were referring to, obviously, and soon after reading this article, he hightailed it out of town. He took his dogs to a boarding kennel, he took a heap of cash out of the bank, got in his Chrysler New Yorker and took off.
2: He packed lightly, cancelled his plane ticket to Australia, where his looming court case was likely to have him end up in prison, and informed his business partner and a few friends that he had to get out of town due to the amount of stress he was experiencing. Well, that was the vague story. I think he was a little more candid with Kimbrell, his business partner, about the PIs after him and the case in Australia. But the story was always slanted with it being a witch hunt against him and a bigger misunderstanding.
1: But while the Whitakers, the Kenyon family and probably a handful of police officers had their suspicions of Wilder, No one knew for sure exactly what he'd been up to. They'd soon learn when he tore away on this cross-continental spree. On the 15th of March 1984, 15-year-old Colleen Osborne had wagged school and spent the day doing, we don't know exactly, but whatever teenage high schoolers did in the 80s when they skipped class. Unfortunately, Colleen was never seen again. The problem was, Colleen was described as a bit of a wild child, which is no sin, I think many of us would probably concede to this description of ourselves in our teens. But Colleen wouldn't be reported missing for a few days because she'd taken off before. But she'd always come back. Unfortunately, she didn't this time.
2: It became evident that a man matching Christopher Wilder's description had offered Colleen a hundred dollars to pose for some photos earlier on the day of her disappearance but Wilder's involvement in the disappearance of Rosario Gonzalez and Beth Kenyon wasn't widely known yet, so he wasn't initially considered for this crime, and they didn't have a body.
1: They would later connect him with CCTV from the area where Colleen had last been seen, and three weeks later, they'd find Colleen's body in the woods near Lake Buena Vista in Orange County. But due to decomposition of the body, And a particular identifying feature on her body that couldn't be confirmed at the time, it was uh, a fracture of the distal humerus from memory, Uh, Colleen's identity and connection to Wilder wouldn't be confirmed until about 30 years later, only a few years ago now, when the DNA technology had advanced enough to confirm Colleen's identity and Wilder was definitively linked to her murder.
2: So Wilder's already got a list of victims here. At least a few murder victims that we know of. But it's important to keep in mind that none of this was known at the time. He was, at this point, connected to the two disappearances, but that had soon changed.
1: Teresa Waite Ferguson was last seen on the 18th of March, 1984, shopping at the Merritt Square Mall. This was maybe a couple of hours north of Boynton Beach. So Wilder got the urge pretty quickly to lure an unsuspecting female after he took off. Teresa, who went by the name Terry, had moved from Massachusetts to Florida when she was around four years old, after her mother entered a relationship and uh, would eventually marry Don Ferguson, who was a police captain.
2: Terry was 20 years old, had a sweet disposition and a beautiful face. She had worked for a silk screening t-shirt company, but her desire long-term was modelling, so she'd fit the wilder type to a T. Terry also had a long-term boyfriend named Dan, her disappearance would be reported immediately, with frantic parents and a boyfriend leading the search for her. Eventually a shop assistant would identify Christopher Wilder as the man she'd last seen Terry speaking with in the
1: shopping mall. On March 21st, about three days later, near Haines City in Polk County, a Tampa Electrical Company worker would spot a body in a snake-infested canal while up a power pole where he was working. The body was so badly decomposed that they had to use dental records to identify her and unfortunately confirmed it to be the body of Terry Waite Ferguson. There was no evidence of sexual assault, but she had been beaten around the head and neck and had a rope tied around her right wrist and neck. Wilder was suspect number one immediately with this attack. But before Terry Ferguson's body was even discovered, Wilder would strike again.
2: On March 20th, he'd attempt to lure 19-year-old Linda Grober from the Governor's Mall in Tallahassee. She was there shopping for a gift for her boyfriend. It was their anniversary that day. Linda was a little different to Wilder's previous targets. She was described as a surfer type. And when Wilder approached her, she dismissed his modelling lure, stating she wasn't interested.
1: But Wilder wouldn't back down. He waited until Linda returned to her car when he physically attacked and abducted her, wrapping her in a blanket and throwing her into the trunk of his car. The attack from this point on we described a little bit in the introduction. He bound her hands, took off for a long drive, and he continuously played Sweet Dreams and Here Comes the Rain Again by the Eurythmics, on repeat. And he headed to Georgia, near, nearly to Louisiana, but he stopped in Georgia at the Glen Oaks Motel in Bainbridge. Once he got a room, he took Linda inside. By this time, I think he'd zipped her up inside a sleeping bag. Uh, Wilder would subject her to unthinkable amounts of torture to sexually gratify himself.
2: And what happened next was a sickening experience for Linda and, as far as we're aware, a new level of depravity for Wilder. He made this electrical torture device that plugged into an outlet and had these... Copper ends, which he'd wrapped around Linda's fingers and toes, and proceeded to electrocute her. And this is tying in with the electroshock therapy spin that Wilder had told his therapists in years
1: gone by. Not only did he do this to Linda, he super glued her eyes together using a hairdryer to set the glue. It was also reported that he sexually assaulted her three times. And I wanted to also mention, it's a minor detail, but it lends to the image of Wilder, even in this scenario. He wore gold bikini briefs while doing all of this. At one point, when Wilder said he was going to shave Linda, she thought to herself, fuck this, I'm not letting this guy near me with a razor, and she made a break for it. Wilder caught her, however, and the pair fought pretty intensely. Wilder eventually knocked her over the head with the hairdryer. Linda hit the deck, seemingly unconscious, but she wasn't, and this mighty intelligent woman was momentarily playing dead. Seconds later, after Wilder thought victory was his, Linda jabbed both of her fingers into his eyes, and then she made another break for it. She couldn't get out of the front door due to the proximity, but she did make it to the bathroom and successfully locked the door. Then she began screaming for help at the top of her lungs.
2: So she's done incredibly well here to even make it to the bathroom, keeping in mind that her eyes are glued shut at this point. Wilder threatens her from the room, but after a while, Linda hears no noise and she sneaks a peek. Wilder, in his usual fashion, had hightailed it out of there and hit the road. Linda would go to the night manager at the motel and contact the police. She was badly injured, but she survived. Such a strong woman.
1: I was in the hospital for a week or something like that. And then I was, I had to basically leave the country while he was still a fugitive because they were concerned about my safety. They are concerned about my family's safety. Because of the kidnapping and crossing state lines, the FBI were now well and truly involved in the manhunt. There's bolos out for Wilder's Chrysler and the police garner quite a bit of useful information from Linda Grober about the attack including the use of this custom-made electrical torture device. So Wilder, while having fled off the back of the newspaper article, knows now that the police and feds are after him. But that doesn't stop this guy. He just keeps escalating. He swaps out his plates while going through Louisiana and continued to try and lure women from malls with his photography scam.
2: Meanwhile, the FBI had executed search warrants back at Wilder's Boynton Beach residence and they'd made a sickening discovery. A false wall in Wilder's room opened up to reveal a sadomasochistic torture chamber of sorts. Chains, whips, all kinds of paraphernalia. But a forensic sweep would yield no results. And it later came out that Wilder had used this chamber when hiring sex workers. He'd have them come over and perform acts with him, and he'd photograph them.
1: The FBI also, after some initial resistance, end up interviewing Wilder's therapist. So they're building a profile of the guy they're dealing with here. By this time Wilder had hit Texas and was blending in with an outfit consisting of cowboy boots and a large brimmed hat. Terry Diane Walden was a 24 year old mother and wife and on the 23rd of March 1984 she'd just dropped off her 4 year old daughter at daycare and was planning on catching up with a friend to do some study during the day. She was a nursing student from Beaumont, Texas. Terry also had a new car at this time, an orange Mercury Cougar.
2: At 5pm that night, Terry's husband, David, received a call from the daycare saying that Terry hadn't come to pick up their daughter. David, who worked nights at the Goodyear chemical plant, went and collected his daughter immediately and went straight to the police after this to report Terry missing. David recalled to the police a story his wife had told him a few days earlier that some creep with a beard had approached her about posing for some photos. She turned him down, but he was insistent. Terry ended up telling him to leave her alone.
1: So the police are alerted to this pretty quickly, and they're connecting the dots to Wilder here as he's crossing the country, seemingly on a spree, and presumably in Terry's cougar, because they've found no trace of that. The family call everyone they know and desperately search for her. Unfortunately, three days later... A man finds Terry's body floating in an irrigation canal just outside Beaumont. She'd been beaten, stabbed three times in the chest and possibly strangled. Two of the stab wounds passed through her entire body, out through her back, and her hands and ankles had been bound, but there was no sign of sexual assault. Wilder was connected when they found his abandoned Chrysler, leading them to think he'd taken Terry's orange cougar and swapped out the plates. But by the time police connected all of this, Wilder had left Texas, passed through Oklahoma, Colorado and onto Nevada. And there's a couple of things we know at this point. One, Wilder was stalking his victims. He'd spotted Terry Walden a few days before he actually made his move on her. And also with Linda Grober, he knew her car at the shopping mall. He'd parked nearby and abducted her while she walked to her car. So he'd clearly been stalking her also and two, this was a planned thing. Some of the rope he had used in the crimes to date was eventually tracked back to his hometown where he'd purchased them, so there was premeditation here. And this photography ruse was a numbers game. Wilder was hitting on more and more women, and when he got lucky, he struck. And when he didn't, he'd strike anyway. He was using all sorts of other names at this point too, Lynn Ivory Bishop, add that to the list with David Pierce and Larry Sidinsky.
2: He was checking in at motels along the way, generally checking in as LK Kimbrell or some version of that, and paying with Kimbrell's own credit card, which we're talking manual swiping to make carbon copies back in this time, so the police aren't able to track him like they would today with the credit card transactions. Nevertheless, they able to get within one hour of Wilder at one point, when they hit Junction City in Kansas on the 26th of March, 1984.
1: On the afternoon of the 25th of March, Suzanne Logan disappeared from the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma after dropping her husband Brian off at work. When she didn't return later to pick him up, the alarm bells obviously rang, and she's reported missing immediately. And it would be the next day, a fisherman would discover Suzanne's body in a reservoir near Junction City, Kansas. She'd been bound with cord and duct tape, beaten, with bite marks on both breasts. She'd been raped and stabbed and had numerous other small cuts and slices on her body, and her pubic hair had been shaved off. We know Wilder had a pension for that from his attack with uh, Linda Grober. Crime scene investigators would also find some of Suzanne's hair in a garbage can at a motel. So Wilder had taken her there as well, and presumably done a similar torture ritual to her.
2: The police were on the scene quickly and the medical examiner determined she'd only died an hour before her body was discovered, but they didn't spot Wilder. On the same night, the police discovered Suzanne Logan's body. Wilder had made it to Denver, Colorado, where he would once again check into a hotel using LK Kimbrell's name and credit card. The following day, he stopped in Aurora and bought himself a Colt Trooper revolver, which fired 357 ammunition. There were no police checks or anything required in Colorado at this time to buy this firearm. Wilder just paid cash and received the weapon, adding it to his kill kit.
1: A few days later, on the 29th of March, 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura went missing from the Mesa Mall shopping centre in Grand Junction, Colorado. Cheryl was packing excitedly earlier that day, getting ready for a trip to Aspen with a friend of hers, but unfortunately she wouldn't show up for departure. Cheryl was an aspiring model, so this made things easier for Wilder in full flight to lure her away. Numerous witnesses would confirm last seeing her with a man matching Wilder's description, and police were all over that because there's a nationwide alert out now for Wilder. Her Mazda was found in the mall parking lot, and there'd be sightings of her with Wilder checking into the Page Boy Motel in Arizona. Wilder had lured her away with the promise of a modelling job in Vegas. Cheryl would remain a missing person until May the 3rd, when her body was discovered by picnickers off Highway 89, just north of Kanab, Utah. She'd been shot and stabbed multiple times. It would appear as though Wilder was testing his new revolver out. Cheryl's
2: mum later spoke at a press conference about losing her daughter, that at least they had some closure knowing where Cheryl was, which is just so sad. So Wilder's remaining a few steps ahead of the law here. He stays in Vegas and leaves behind in a hotel room one night, a bunch of bras and panties and a blow-up doll and a dildo for no apparent reason.
1: On April the 1st, 17-year-old Michelle Kaufman would disappear from the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas. Michelle was described as a startlingly beautiful young woman who looked a bit like Cindy Crawford. She was participating in a fashion show at around 2.30pm that afternoon and she was last seen around 415 at the event's conclusion, talking to a white male, around 6 feet tall, blonde thinning hair and a full beard. It wouldn't be long before Michelle's abandoned car was discovered, signalling to Michelle's family and the pursuing police and FBI what many were already fearing at that point, law enforcement requested photos from all of the sanctioned photographers at the fashion show, and a guy came forward right away with five rolls of film.
0: And when they printed those photographs, there was the Korfman girl on stage in a modelling-type pose, and who's directly beyond her, about 20 feet away looking at her with what I call the look of a homicidal maniac, none other than Christopher Wilder.
1: But her untimely demise would see her become Christopher Wilder's eighth confirmed victim. Michelle's body was ultimately discovered just off the highway in the Angeles National Forest. They identified her through dental records, and the cause of her death was termed as asphyxia caused by aspiration of foreign matter, soil in brackets, in her larynx and trachea. So Wilder had essentially pushed her face into the dirt and held it there until she died. It's just uh, so horrific to think that what this young lady went through in her final moments.
2: Wilder had done with Michelle what he'd done with most of his murder victims to this point, kept them captive in his boot for a period, tortured and assaulted them, before killing and discarding their bodies, with no regard, like a bag of trash essentially.
1: But two days after Michelle's disappearance, Christopher Wilder would hit the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. And this was an absolutely huge deal. To make it to the 10 most wanted list, it means that you are a bad motherfucker. And priority one on the radar of the most feared law enforcement agency in the world. The exposure generated from this listing was insurmountable. And we're talking about the days well before social media, obviously. So there's flyers in every post office in the east and southeast of the US where Wilder had been trekking.
2: The FBI had also gotten hold of Wilder's dating service tape at this time, so they broadcast that in an attempt to help people identify this predator should they come across him. But the FBI knew Wilder's frequency was increasing, so he wasn't going to stop of his own accord, and it even mentioned that the police had gleaned from his therapist that Wilder didn't want to go to prison and that he'd also had suicidal tendencies.
1: Wilder would next arrive in the town of Torrance, California, at the Dalamo Fashion Centre Mall, here he'd cross paths with Tina Rosico, a young 16-year-old girl who had gone to the mall that day to apply for a job at the gourmet food store Hickory Farms. Wilder would lure Tina away with a crisp $100 bill and the promise of taking some photos for a billboard, which would be a huge exposure for her if she was interested in modelling, which she was. He softened her up with the mention of going to see her mother to have some paperwork signed, and then they'd take a trip past the modelling school. So he's building legitimacy here again. He presented as being a representative of the John Powers Modelling School, which he wasn't, but once again made him seem the part.
2: They drove in Terry Walden's orange Mercury Cougar to a couple of different locations before Wilder turned on Tina, flicked like a switch and shoved the barrel of his revolver into her mouth, telling her basically to do everything he said from here on out or he'd kill her. He'd forced Tina into the back of the car, and in a repeat of his sexual assault years before, he'd forced her to straddle him as he raped her.
1: Wilder would hold Tina Rosico captive for some time after this, taking her on the road across the country with him, subjecting her to much of the same style of rape and electrical torture, demeaning photography and posing as he masturbated over her and indoctrinating her into subservience basically, almost brainwashing her over a period of time to becoming completely mentally and physically dominated by him. And this is a hard thing to comprehend, the sheer brutality of what Tina Resiko experienced during this time, day after day, is sickening to think about. At this point, Rosico must have thought of compliance as their only survival mechanism. Considering the area they were in, it seemed likely that Wilder was going to cross the border into Mexico, but he didn't. Instead, he went the other way, back across the country towards Gary, Indiana, which just seems like a strange direction to go, and it baffled the authorities too.
2: Wilder had shaved off his beard by this time too, to alter his appearance and evade capture. He'd worked Riziko down so much that he could now trust her to drive. These two factors would be a smart move by Wilder, as the police were looking for a bearded man who was presumably driving, not a car with a female driver. So this was a long cross-country drive, and Wilder kept up his threat to kill Riziko if she didn't remain compliant and satisfy him sexually, forcing her to call him sir and state that she was his a possible flashback to his father's military discipline style in his childhood, being made to call him sir as a sign of respect.
1: Rosico had been Wilder's slave for almost a week when they rolled into a small shopping mall in Merrillville, near Gary, Indiana, on April the 10th. Wilder told Rosico he was going to hunt for another girl to become his driver. At Southlake Mall, Wilder firstly bought some Diana von Furstenberg perfume which was his favourite scent, and apparently he used to spray this on his victims before he raped them because he loved the smell so much.
2: Then he spotted his target at a store named Susie's Casual. This girl was filling out a job application. Wilder put Riziko to work, ordering her to coerce the girl into coming with him, and if Riziko didn't, he'd shoot her dead in the mall. Riziko approached this girl, her name was Dornette Wilt, and told her that her boss wanted to see her about a modelling
1: job. With the smooth-talking Wilder and Resiko there to ease any suspicion, Dornette was easily convinced at the great modelling opportunity and followed them back to the car, at which point Wilder pulled his gun out and forced her into the back, telling her this was real baby, get in, like some sort of fucking psychopathic Austin Powers. They headed east where they checked in at a Best Western in Akron, Ohio. Wilder repeatedly raped Dornette in the car and in the hotel, forced the girls to take showers before he raped them, conducted the same electrical torture on Dornette and bit one of her nipples off and forced both of the girls to have sex with one another. Dornette and Tina snuck in only a few moments of conversation when they had a brief moment, but it was pretty clear that Tina Rosico was suffering from some sort of Stockholm Syndrome thing at this time.
2: The trio kept on this sick road trip, with Wilder continuing his brutality along the way, until they reached Penyan in the Finger Lakes district of Yates County. Wilder had apparently seen news reports about him and Rosico at this point and told her, that's it, you're going home. He'd also mentioned at this point that he was a three-time loser, which Dornette inferred to mean that he had nothing left to lose and she was probably going to die.
1: In Penyan, they stopped on Welker Road, which was near some forest. Wilder took Dornette Wilt from the car and out into the woods and he tried to choke and suffocate her. He stabbed her once in the back of her neck and twice in the chest, and left her for dead on the ground. But Dornette wasn't dead. She yelled at him, I hate you, I hope you die. To which Wilder replied, Shut up, bitch. He went back to the car with Rosico behind the wheel, and they drove off before returning only minutes later. Wilder a shaken mess, and he went back to finish Dornette off. But when he got to the spot, Dornette was gone. She'd managed to pick herself up in her wounded state and made a tourniquet out of some of her clothing before stumbling to the roadway and flagging down a passerby who took her to the hospital.
2: Dornette survived through sheer willpower and determination. She's able to tell police details about where Wilder and Riziko are headed towards Canada and that Wilder had no intentions of being taken alive. He made it abundantly clear that he didn't, didn't want to go to prison. That sort of lifestyle would not have suited someone like Christopher Wilder. Donette confirmed they were still driving the Mercury Cougar. However, that wouldn't be the case for long.
1: Beth Dodge was a 33-year-old mother from Victor, New York. She was a systems analyst for Mobile Chemicals. On this same day, not long after Donet's terrifying ordeal... Beth had left her home to drop off her daughter Stephanie at school, then she went to work, driving her new gold Pontiac Firebird which she'd purchased for herself as a gift when she'd parted ways with her partner. Late morning, Beth left work and went to the Eastview Mall in Victor for an early lunch. Unbeknownst to her, Christopher Wilder was lurking with Tina Rosico, his brainwashed companion who was fearing for her life should she not comply with the madman's every demand. Wilder, being a lover of flash cars, picked out the dazzling firebird, and when Beth returned, he rolled her at gunpoint, forced her into the car and stole the firebird. Wilder instructed Tina Rizico to drive the cougar while he and Beth Dodge were in the firebird. They drove for about 15 minutes to McGann's pub, where they abandoned the cougar, took all the luggage out and Wilder let the front tyre down.
2: Tina got in the Firebird with Wilder still threatening Beth at gunpoint and they went to another area close by. It was sort of this gravelly pit area with mounds of loose gravel adjacent to the forest once again. Wilder ordered Beth from the car and effectively he executed her on the spot, shot her through the back with his revolver and the bullet pierced her heart someone would spot Wilder leaving the scene and call it in. So Beth was discovered by police shortly after this.
1: And you have to ask at this point, why Tina Rosico didn't drive off when she was behind the wheel of the cougar? It certainly seems like she could have. However, it's very difficult to know and understand uh, where she was at mentally, having endured what she had for the past week and taking into consideration her young age. We're not talking about a woman in her 20s or 30s here. This was a young 16-year-old girl. It was suggested by Dornette Wilt that Tina had one or two occasions where she could have escaped but didn't. But Dornette put that down to how brainwashed into compliance she'd become out of fear for her life. Wilder did say things like he was a race car driver and if she drove off he'd hunt her down and shoot her on the spot. But the saddest thing in this one is that Beth Dodge was essentially killed to her car. She wasn't Wilder's usual type and really that's the long and the short of it and it's incredibly sad. Wilder knew what had happened with Dawn Uh He needed a new ride and the Pontiac Firebird was the one.
2: Then we come to a strange twist in this story, which we've kind of alluded to already. Wilder's had Riziko under his spell for over a week. He'd tortured and raped her and had performed a acts but there's something about her that he'd grown to care about. And what he does next is a first. Wilder lets Tina Rizzico go. He gets wind of Dornette's survival on the radio news report, so Wilder doesn't stop in at New York. He switches things up and drives non-stop 600 kilometres through to Boston, where he takes Tina to the Logan Airport. He buys her a ticket home to her family in California, gives her some money, a kiss on the cheek and tells her, tell the law I said hi, and all
1: you got to do, kid, is write a book. And with that, he left her. Tina brought some french fries and spoke to a man named Carl, cried and laughed and caught the plane home. When she got to California, she caught a cab, but stopped at a clothing store called Tushery to get some basic clothing and toiletries before she went home. There's different stories of how this all went down, some say that she saw some friends and was so scattered they took her home, some say she spoke to people in the store and mentioned Wilder uh, and she said that apparently he'd cut her hair to look like the girl in Flashdance, others paint a story of a confused and distraught young girl who had endured a horrendous ordeal under duress and fear for her life. When she got home, she did go straight to the police later that night or first thing in the morning, as I understand.
2: But the official opinion and assessment by professionals of Tina's behaviour, and that's all you can really go off, was that she'd effectively suffered from some form of mental manipulation and was equally a victim of rape, assault, kidnapping and torture as many of the other victims had been. And the reason we explain that is because there was a lot of questions of Tina why she hadn't fled or come straight to the police or done more to help Wilder's other victims or indeed why she'd participated in the ruse.
1: She would be given immunity from prosecution and police would interview her extensively with hopes of gleaning information about the location of Rosario Gonzalez and Beth Kenyon's bodies. But ultimately, Tina Rosico was unable to offer up much tangible information pertaining to these cases just some generic info about Wilder's methods. But Wilder still on the prowl during the time Tina was returning to California. The manhunt had intensified, and he was at the forefront of every news media outlet across the United States. Wilder saw a woman named Carol Hilbert broken down on the side of the road. He turned on the charm and offered her a lift to a service station, and she took him up on this offer. Things turned Wilder-esque pretty quickly on the ride and he pulled his gun out and attempted to abduct her, but she bailed from the moving car, jumped right out when this psycho went next level on her, so good on her.
2: But Wilder was headed through New Hampshire now, through the White Mountain National Forest, towards the Canadian border, and he was throwing out evidence along the way, which seemed strange because, as he'd said himself a few times now, he wasn't going to be taken alive. So not sure what difference having panties and bags and different things in the car was going to make.
1: On Friday the 13th of April at about 1.30pm, Wilder stopped in Colebrook, a little town on the Connecticut River, about 16 kilometres or 10 miles from the Canadian border. He pulled into the Getty service station to refuel and asked the attendant what documentation he needed to get across the border into Canada. Meanwhile, Officer Leo Jellison and his new partner, Wayne Fortier, had just caught up with a pair of colleagues for lunch at the Speedy Diner, and they were driving down the road past the Getty station. The pair were state troopers in the detective unit, so they were plainclothes and in an unmarked car, as I understand. Jellison apparently looked like a young Clint Eastwood, so we've got a bit of good, the bad and the ugly action going on here. As they passed the station, they noticed a gold Pontiac Firebird stopped in the parking lot. And for those who were wondering, a gold Pontiac Firebird stood out like dog's balls. So Jellison and Fortier instantly noticed it. They
2: pulled into the car park and watched the vehicle as Wilder returned to it to grab some paperwork, intending to head back to the station to talk again with the attendant. But the troopers, despite their car being unmarked, caught Wilder's eye and he began watching them like a hawk. Jallison and Fortier didn't know for sure it was Wilder just yet, but they had a pretty good inkling after sighting the guy. Wilder had a decent tan from Miami, but Jellison could tell that he'd recently shaven because the skin on the beard area was so much whiter. So right away he knew he wasn't a local. He's fitting the description of this fugitive on the FBI most wanted list, and he's driving the car they suspected.
1: Jellison said to Fortier, that's the son of a bitch we're looking for, before he left his vehicle and called out to Wilder. Wilder started a reply, and then his flight instinct kicked right in, and he scrambled into the front of the Firebird, bent over, reaching for something inside the vehicle. Jellison advanced towards Wilder quickly, thinking he was pawing for some kind of weapon, which he was. Wilder managed to retrieve his Colt revolver, Jellison wrapped up Wilder in kind of a bear hug from behind and then a gunshot went off. The bullet went straight through Wilder and into Trooper Jellison's liver and a moment later the gun went off again. The second bullet went straight through Christopher Wilder's heart and killed him instantly.
2: And with that, the Christopher Wilder saga came to an abrupt end. Trooper Jellison did survive and recovered from his injury, but it was serious He and Trooper Fortier would later receive formal recognition for their efforts in apprehending Christopher Wilder. So there was a lot of conjecture afterwards whether Wilder had been killed in a skirmish with police or if he'd taken his own life. We think he took his own life. That seems like a reasonable inference to make from what we know.
1: Police would discover Wilder's kill kit in the vehicle. Obviously he had his revolver on him. There was a large hunting-style knife, the electrical torture device... Duct tape, rope, sleeping bag, credit cards from the business, the book entitled The Collector, which we mentioned earlier. Wilder was cremated in Florida and it was said he left behind a personal estate worth almost $2 million, of which some of his victims' families would receive a small amount. To this day, the Kenyon and Gonzalez families have never been able to close the chapter on their daughters' disappearances. Beth and Rosario's bodies have never been found, which is incredibly sad for their families.
2: So Wilder's official victim list runs at eight or nine, depending on your source of information, but it's definitely a lot higher, probably into the mid-teens, possibly up to and into the 20s even. He's been linked to many other murders and disappearances, most we mentioned earlier as we went along, but there's others, particularly the Vegas area, where he spent some time and there's many unsolved disappearances from that time period and bodies that have never been found.
1: But perhaps the biggest case Christopher Wilder has been connected to is the infamous Australian unsolved murders of Mary Ann Schmidt and Christine Sharrock, commonly known as the Wanda Beach murders. We're going to cover that case in detail next week and discuss Wilder's potential as a suspect and many others who've made the suspect list over the years. It was some 20 years earlier, this case, in 1965. So, in the timeline of events, if we go back, about two years after Wilder was convicted of his first rape at the quarry, and about two years before his marriage to Jane. As we said, this is an extremely well known and well covered case, and Wilder's name was thrown into the mix as a suspect very early on, after the end of his marriage to Jane. And we don't know the details of what was reported about him, but we do know it was Jane's mother who contacted the police about Wilder as a person of interest. If we recall, he attempted to attack her in the family home at one point. But that report and police file noting Wilder as a suspect was buried, and it wouldn't be rediscovered until years later, around the time of Wilder's deadly spree. And publicly, it would be later again, in more recent times really. And with that, I retire with no thoughts to add. This was one crazy case that uh, really speaks for itself, to be honest.
2: Yeah, I'm a little the same. What a terrible, reckless, painful series of crimes. Um, so sorry for all the victims and their families, I guess. Let's move on to some happy things. We've got some five-star reviews this yes, week. Yes,
1: let's get into some positivity.
2: The first one comes from Ruby Says So, and it's called Fab New Podcast. She says, loving the podcast. Came across this while on a picnic in the Belangelo National Forest. Has not disappointed at all and I'm looking forward to new eps. Loving the ease of the storytelling and the banter between hosts, which stays relevant without taking away from the story. And, of course, the Aussie-isms. Keep up the great work, guys. Definitely five stars for sure. Shared on my own True Crime Facebook forum several times. Thank you so much, Ruby. The next one is from Ness H. 76 and it's called just brilliant. I have listened to a few podcasts before, but true blue true crime is by far my favorite. The way the cases are laid out by you guys is great. And the small banter you have is just the right amount. My new favorite saying, is, <laughs> my new favorite sayings are Darren hinge choking on his meat pie, sleazy Popeye and shit burger. Can't wait for more episodes to be released. <laughs>
1: The next one is from Helen Howden. It's entitled Brilliant. It says, after searching for another podcast that is informative, sensitive and direct in its presentation, True Blue True Crime delivers enjoyable and informative. Thanks very much, Alan.
2: And we've got two more. The next one is from Brian1972 and it says, it's called fin- Fantastic True Crime Podcast. It says, just finishing listening to the Jill Mar podcast, fantastic and very informative done so professionally and with respect to Jill and her family. So sad what happened to Jill and that piece of pus should never have been out of jail in the first place. The amount of horrible crimes he committed against women. We should all take up a collection for the next person to use something a little better than a fork, just saying. Yes. (laughs) Um, and And the next one is from Russell Swart and it's called Truest of Blues. Very respectfully written episodes with just the right amount of banter for a dual host podcast, which is rare. Thank you guys for the research and effort that obviously goes into each episode. Keep up the good work and I'll keep the good listening. (laughs) Thank you so much, everyone. Those reviews are so thoughtful and really mean a lot to us. And as we've said, really
1: help us. Yes, thank you everyone. We appreciate it. Uh onto some happy thoughts next. Now I do have one written here, Chloe, but it's actually not the one I'm gonna go with. Oh. I'm gonna mix it up at the last minute because <laughs> as I was driving here, I was coming down Hoddle Street. And um, for those of you outside of Australia, um, we're sort of coming into election time now. And there was a guy who's obviously running in that area as a candidate. <laughs> his name was um his name was Max Dix. And <laughs> I think it was Max Dix. His last name was Dix. And he's got <laughs> on the board it says don't be a dick, elect one instead. Or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> that was my happy thought. That got me laughing. And even though I don't live in that area and I won't be voting for him, I hope he gets in. So do you
2: even know what party he was representing?
1: Absolutely no idea. I tuned out when mm. I saw dicks. Yeah. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Moving on. Um <laughs> my happy thought is that I've been doing boxing regularly. So I, you know, go to my local gym and they offer classes and there's a boxing on a Tuesday. And As you know, Sean, because I often complain about being sore on a Wednesday when we record, (laughs) but it's so good, especially as someone who gets anxious. It's such a good reset. I went last night and was so stressed out and, you know, to the point I left my phone at home because I just didn't want to get any more emails or phone calls or texts or anything. And you can't think about anything else when you're punching the crap out of something. (laughs) It's the best. So if anyone can get to boxing, I would so recommend it. If you do have any story suggestions, feedback on anything or questions, you can email us at truebluecrime at gmail.com or you can join our Facebook group, which is called True Blue True Crime Dash Podcast or find us on Instagram by searching True Blue Crime. And the link to all of these and our Patreon page will be in the show notes as well.
1: And Chloe, it turns out that Christopher Wilder wasn't the only serial killer preying on women with modelling aspirations in the US during the 70s and 80s. While we're coming back to Australian shores for our main case next week, we have a bit more flex in the guidelines on Patreon, so we're going to stick around in the USA for a while longer over there and talk about a guy named William Bradford, a guy who had half the profile of Christopher Wilder, but... Just might have twice as many victims potentially so if you'd like to hear about that and check out our backlog of patreon episodes head on over to patreon.com slash true blue crime and sign up for two dollars per month but that's it for us today thanks again for listening everyone and we'll catch you all again next week on true blue true crime
2: bye